This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 51. One of the most beautiful stories of devastation and restoration is found in the life of the Apostle Peter. The devastation is described in John chapter 18 on the night when Jesus was betrayed. While Jesus testified before his accusers, Peter denied the one he had recently professed as Lord. Uh, While Jesus stood on the truth of who he was, Peter fled into the shadows, saying, I never knew the man. While Jesus was being struck by a temple guard, Peter fled any association as one of his disciples. He denied him for the third time, just as the crow of the rooster was heard ringing through the streets of David's city. The one whom Jesus called the rock sank like a stone. The restoration of Peter is found two chapters later in John chapter 21. With his feet on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, he stood face to face with the resurrected Christ. Three times he had denied knowing Jesus. Then the Savior looks him in the eye and asked three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, again and again. Each time Jesus replied, feed my sheep. To the sinner who had betrayed his Lord, not with a kiss, but with his lips, Jesus showed mercy and called his beloved disciple to teach others everything that he had learned. But that's not how the story ends. If you turn two chapters forward in your Bible, you'll be in Acts chapter 2. And here, the Apostle Peter stands on the same streets where he had denied his Lord and now boldly proclaims who Jesus is and the mercy that he had come to know. He preaches through the passages of the Old Testament and explains how the man they had recently crucified was not just a man, but in fact, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Immediately, the people are cut to the heart and they ask, what shall we do? And Peter shares the heart-changing, life-transforming message of the gospel and tells them how to be made right with God. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin. The life of Peter is a story of God's great mercy. We find a man who had already placed his faith in Christ still commit great sin, yet he experienced grace that was greater than all his sin, and his fellowship with Jesus was restored. And then Peter goes on to proclaim Good news of forgiveness to thousands as they come to faith in Christ. 
Peter's life was not over when he sinned. His life was redeemed, restored, renewed, and became an ongoing response to the forgiveness that he'd received in Christ. Peter's life is a story of God's mercy. We've seen over the last four weeks how the life of King David is also a story of God's great mercy. Though he had believed in God by faith, he'd committed terrible sin. And so he pleads with God, asking for forgiveness and for fellowship with God to be restored. And like Peter, David has no intent of staying silent about the grace that God had shown to him. But his desire is to proclaim to any who would hear good news of God's forgiveness. David's life, like Peter's, is one of God's great mercy. What is your story of God's great mercy? In the final stretch of Psalm 51, David anticipates how he will respond to being forgiven, to the grace and mercy of God being shown to him. The psalmist first approached the Lord in a spirit of repentance as he confessed his sin, verses 1 to 5. Next, he prayed for restoration, verses 6 through 9. He asked to be washed and purified. This led him to pray for complete renewal from within, for a clean heart in verses 10 to 12. The last lyrics we find in verses 13 to 19 are written from the perspective of his response to God having redeemed his life. David has endured the dark night of the soul because of his sin, but he awakened to new morning mercies, ready to tell of all that God has done. Let us study his response under three headings. First, proclamation and praise. Second, wonder and worship. And third, edification and restoration. So we have our heading. Would you stand with me as we read from God's holy and inerrant word? Psalm chapter 51, verses 13 to 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then... Will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first response is David promises proclamation and praise. Verses 13 to 15. 
The word then that begins verse 13 is the hinge of the entire psalm, turning from the themes of repentance and the request for inner renewal. David now anticipates and expects what will happen then, then, when his sin no longer separates him from fellowship with God. Then, when he is certain his wrongs have been blotted out. Then, when his heart is made completely clean from the inside out. And he hasn't experienced these graces yet, but he's confident they are coming as surely as the dawn. And once he has known this kind of forgiveness firsthand, he has no intent to keep quiet about it. David will begin this ministry of telling, a ministry of telling others the wonders of God and all that God has done in his life. The first aspect to this future ministry is proclamation. We find this in verses 13 and 14. David wants to teach the ways of God to a specific type of person, a transgressor, a sinner, those like him, who have broken God's laws and run from his commands. And hasn't David learned invaluable lessons that he can now teach to others? He doesn't want them to live and die apart from knowing the reality of their deep need for forgiveness. And so he promises to pursue transgressors, to tell them that reconciliation with God is possible. The very one who prayed earlier, restore me, will now spend his days helping others know the restoring power of God. The one who cried out for mercy will now lead others to the fountain of all mercy. And he resolves not only to tell of God's mercy in spoken form, but also in song. Sometimes a song can teach in a way that a sermon cannot William Plummer on this text wrote, wrote, great mercies call for great songs. Great mercies call for great songs. And this is why we devote so much time in our gatherings to singing. Because we've been shown great mercy. And our hearts can't help but sing and tell of all that God's done for us. So David will use the sermon and the song to magnify the mercy of God. The second aspect of this telling ministry is praise. David will not only teach others the ways of God, once he's been delivered from his guilt, he'll stand side by side with them in the congregation of God's delivered, forgiven, cleansed, made new people and join them in praise. His song will not only go out to his neighbors, but it will go up to his God. He will not only sing to others about God's righteousness, but his heart will also be lifted in praise to the God of perfect righteousness. Now there's a confident phrase in verse 13 that leaps off the page with good news. It's not a confidence in David's persuading abilities or in his communication skills at all. His confidence is in God. And he knows the heart of God towards sinners and how the Lord delights in bringing sinners to himself. And so David sings 
Sinners will return to you. Many will see and fear and put their trust in God. As the good news of forgiveness in God is proclaimed, hard-hearted rebels will be transformed into soft-hearted children. Prodigal sons and daughters will be drawn to the magnet of God's irresistible grace. False idolaters will become true worshipers through this ministry of proclamation and praise. So let me take this opportunity to remind each of us who have come to know the mercy of God in Christ that we share in this mandate of telling others of what we've received. Martin Luther wrote, If we have, through faith in Christ, received the righteousness and grace of God, we can do no greater work than to speak and declare the truth of Christ. And so if you have come to know the mercy of Jesus that you now share in this ministry of telling You've been called to proclaim and praise the one who's called you out of darkness into marvelous light. To point others to the God who alone can forgive sin. The one who delights to give mercy to sinners. And isn't this exactly what we saw the prophet Nathan do in the life of King David? Nathan loved David enough to speak truth to him, to point out his sin And point him to the God who forgives. Who has God placed in your life that you must proclaim the mercy of Christ to? And how often uh, are the praises of God on your lips as you're just telling family members, friends, colleagues who are not in Christ the things you know to be true about the living God? Guys, we've been brought into this ministry of telling Ours is a ministry of proclamation and praise. The second response of the psalmist is wonder and worship. We find this in verses 16 and 17, where David rehearses to himself and to us things that he knows to be true about God. We've seen the importance of the heart being made new in verses 10 through 12. Now we discover the importance of the heart pertaining to the practice of worship. The first response is wonder in verse 16. David claims that if he were to bring a sacrifice, God would not be pleased with it. If he were to bring an offering, God would even reject it. It may sound like at first glance, David is even demeaning the God-given sacrificial system or saying that somehow it's outdated. Yet the sacrifices of worship, which are outlined in Scripture, are not going away in his lifetime. These would not be fulfilled until great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, walked the earth a thousand years later, whose once and for all final sacrifice fulfilled all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And so if that's true, what's he on about here? Well, as we consider the two major sins in David's life, adultery and murder, it's important for you to see that under the Mosaic law, there was no sacrifice specifically stated for those two sins. The penalty for adultery or murder was simply death. 
And so the wonder that I'm talking about here is the wonder that David is even alive. He knows there's, he knows there's no sacrifice that he can bring to cover his sin. But there's something even more in view. Sacrifices and offerings pointed to more than just an animal being slain. They signified a sinner coming before the holy God wanting to be restored. A sinner coming asking to be cleansed of their sin. The peace offering represented God and sinner reconciled. David's at the end of himself. There's no sacrifice he can make to make things right with God. The only thing he can bring is a completely dependent heart, a humble heart before the holy God. The second aspect here is worship, verse 17. And here we reach one of the most beautiful phrases in the whole of Scripture when it comes to how we are to understand um, the heart and worship in the life of a believer. Here's what David writes. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How often have you come before the Lord with nothing to bring except being heartbroken over the state of your own sin? David remembers that he need not come before God with a costly gift or some pious prayer. He's simply required to bring a heart of honest brokenness, of deep humility, of total dependence. Uh, a few years ago, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote a, a devotional commentary on the book of Psalms called The Songs of Jesus. And on this verse, this is what they write. What is the broken and contrite heart God wants so much? It's a heart that knows how little it deserves, yet how much it has received. To know only the first truth is to be self-loathing. To know only the second is to be self-satisfied. And both kind of hearts will be self-absorbed. David is talking instead about hearts broken by costly, free grace. Knowing both how lost and how loved we are. Knowing just how lost and how loved we are. That truth pulls us out of ourselves. Perhaps you need to rehearse the good news of the gospel to yourself this morning. Perhaps there's even a sin you've committed and you're afraid there's no covering for it. Well, friend, this is why Jesus has come. There is not one sin that you've committed that the blood of Christ cannot fully cover and pardon and cleanse from within. And so, Christian, you remind yourself of the chasm that once stood between you and the holy God. But now the cross of Christ has bridged and made a way for you to be right with God again. Maybe you've drifted into a pattern of performance or your acts of worship have been reduced to just going through the motions. It may even be that unrepented sin in your life is separating you from knowing the nearness and presence of God. Or maybe you've just forgotten how little you deserve, but how much you've received. 
I pray that God's word would remind you once again how lost, but how loved you are in Christ. Not based on your performance, but based on his covenantal, undeserved, unearned love toward you. Pray that your heart would be filled with the wonder of God's grace and would respond with genuine worship to the Lord. And these final verses of Psalm 51 point to edification and restoration, verses 18 and 19. After David anticipates what he will do, he then anticipates what God will do. Just as we noted the word then back in verse 13, there's another then carefully placed right in the middle of verses 18 and 19, pointing not to any act of David, but an act of God. The psalm opened with David singing of complete dependence on the God of every mercy, and it concludes the same way. The first prayer is for edification. I'll explain. In verse 18, David asks the Lord, first, that he would do good to his people, that the God of all goodness would do good to his people and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Like the benediction that we heard spoken over our lives each week at the end of our worship service, David ends his song asking that the blessing of God would rest on his people. The Hebrew verb found in the second part of the phrase of building up the walls of Jerusalem, that phrase build up is sometimes used in connection with construction. But here it's used as poetry that has in view far more than stones stacked upon one another. David is praying that God would build up his people in the sense of spiritually strengthen them. The Latin synonym for this very word is the word edify. Edify. As we saw in the story behind the song, sin doesn't just affect the person committing the offense but it ripples through the lives of others like a stone being thrown into a still pond. The ripples of that sin reach the shoreline. David's sin has affected Bathsheba and Uriah and ultimately the entire nation. And David understands that his sin committed as the king of Israel could result in God punishing the entire nation at certain points in Israel's history. That's exactly what we see happen. What David's asking for is not the justice that he knows he deserves as king that would result in impacting and affecting those that he loves. Rather that God would show grace to him and he would bless his people and build them up instead. The prayer of verse 19 acknowledges David's desire for restoration, particularly restoration of right worship. Now we saw just two verses earlier that it was not burnt sacrifices or offerings that would please God in themselves, yet now he prophesies of a day when those will please God. So which is it, David? Does God want the sacrifice or not? What's the difference here? Well, the sacrifices and offerings in view are being given now from hearts that understand the mercy of God. These acts of worship are not being given just to try to cover up sin, These offerings are being given out of love for the merciful, righteous, holy, covenantal God. David knows that a congregation of 
broken-hearted people over their sin will result in them receiving and experiencing forgiveness and then being built up as a righteous, holy people. It seems fitting as we reach the end of these verses that we pray along with David. This psalm has been teaching us to pray with every move. And here it does the same. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me for two specific things in light of this text. The first is for edification. That the Lord would build up the walls of the Trails Church. And I mean nothing to do with concrete and steel. That he would build us up spiritually into the household of God. Into a people marked by his grace where the Spirit of God dwells in and among us, where the mercies of God flow to us and through us to the community around us, that we would experience the blessing of God together. In just two weeks, we will celebrate five years of God's goodness to us as a church. And I don't think it's any accident that we've come here to Psalm 51 at this pivotal time. Because I believe that if we are to experience the kind of renewal, the kind of gospel revival, the kind of genuine response that the Lord wants to do in us, we've got to stay right here with our hearts humbled before the holiness of God, completely dependent upon Him, practicing our our repentance before Him, Not just as a theological, yes, we understand this, but as a heartfelt, practiced way of living as the people of God. And to pray for edification, that the Lord would build us up spiritually. And also for restoration. And I mean restoration in every sense of the word. That he would restore the brokenness within us. That he would restore relationships, even in our church, that are strained by sin. Perhaps your marriage might be described that way, or a relationship with a child, or a former friend, that the Lord in his great mercy would restore to us peace. And and, and I think even in a broader sense, in a more focused sense, that the Lord might restore the hearts of those who who will live and die in their sin apart from knowing the saving work of Christ. And that God in his great mercy might restore them to him. I told you that the theme of Psalm 51 was not sin, but mercy. So I hope as we've traveled these last four weeks, you're not thinking about sin all the time. But your eyes are lifted to the one who brings forgiveness through his great mercy. And so let me just speak to those of you who perhaps have been walking with us these last four weeks through Psalm 51. But still, still you've not come to the end of yourself trusted in Christ, I pray in this very moment that you would practice the repentance that we've talked about, that you would humble your heart before the holiness of God, cry out for his mercy to you. Just like the apostle Peter we looked at in Acts chapter 2, you might say, well, how do I do that? I want to proclaim to you the same good news that for 2,000 years the church has heralded. Peter said, repent. Repent, turn from your sin and turn to the living Christ and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of sin. You can be made right with God. That can happen before you leave this room today. Eugene Peterson once wrote, most scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. I find that so helpful. Most scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. Psalm 51 is one of those chapters that speak for us. A people who are prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. A people who need language to know how to come before the Lord in repentance and confession. And so I pray as we have studied over these last four weeks the classic statement of repentance in the Old Testament, that God has spoken to you through it, that he's spoken to you through his word. I pray that those of us who need a fresh understanding of repentance would now walk in it before the Lord. That those of you who have experienced restoration, a restoration, a relationship restored with your Savior, that you would be reminded how your sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Not one sin remains now on your account, but Christ has paid for them all. And I pray that together we would experience renewal from within. That nothing in our lives would remain the same, but the power of the gospel would transform us with clean hearts, renewed hearts before the Lord. And that we would respond together as a church family, as a proclaiming, praising, evangelizing, teaching people who are eager to share with fellow sinners where mercy can be found in Christ and Christ alone. Throughout church history, if you study every awakening, every revival, every gospel advancement, paired with these powerful moves of God is the practice of repentance. I just wonder what the Lord might do through us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the light of your word, how it illuminates, how it convicts, and how it pulls us to the light where we can find cleansing. Would you enable us to walk in the light as you are in the light by the help of your spirit and for the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.